You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. You're tuned into The Wire, one hour of current affairs and analysis starting now. Tēnā koutou katoa, ko Rosetta toku ingoa, nā mai haere mai ki te wire mō tēnei Kia ora and welcome to The Wire for Rahina Monday. I'm your host Rosetta and I'll be with you for the next hour. I'm also joined in the studio by producer Rowan. If Aikine coming up on the show, I spoke to Professor Ines Asher from the Child Poverty Action Group about Te Whatu Order data showing a sharp rise in preventable paediatric hospital admissions over the past year. I also spoke to Bernard Sama, University of Auckland doctoral candidate at the Faculty of Education and Social Work and recipient of Te Whainga i Te Tika Award for Social Justice about his work as a refugee advocate and why Aotearoa should be accepting more refugees fleeing humanitarian crises. I also spoke to University of Auckland Associate Professor Sir Colin Tukuitonga, who is co-director of Te Pautoko Ora Akiwa in the Faculty of Medical and Health Sciences, about what the official election results will mean for our Pacifica community. Rowan, what have you got for us today? For our weekly catch-up with the ACT Party, I spoke with ACT MP Karen Chaw about the final election results released on Friday and what this means for our incoming government. I also spoke with Derek Hanley, founder of financial assistance company ERA, about a report they released showing the difficulties first home buyers face. would love to hear your thoughts on any of these pieces, so please get in touch. Text in on 5395 or Why Mairane. Give us a call in the studio on 309 3879. As usual, you can catch all of these stories and more by podcast on the 95BFM website. 95bfm.com. Let's get into it. It's time for our weekly catch-up with the ACT Party's Karen Chaw. Today I spoke with ACT MP Karen Chaw about the final election results released on Friday. I started off by asking what the overall experience has been since the final results were released. We then spoke about the National ACT Coalition having to include New Zealand first and what this might look like moving forward. I also asked about the impact of having no Pacifica MPs in government, as well as the likely possibility of disassembling the Maori Health Authority. The final election results came out on Friday. First of all, what was the overall feeling of those results? I think we uh, we kind of knew that this is, was a possibility, so it wasn't that much of a shock. Um, now we now we're just kind of um, excited about moving forward and actually um, forming a, a stable government that will deliver what New Zealanders voted for. And all three parties um, campaigned on real change um, from what the Labour government had given us over the last six years. Um, so I'm really excited moving forward to see what that looks like. It was also made clear that National and ACT will not be able to form a government on their own, meaning the parties will need New Zealand first uh, to be in government. Have there been any previous discussions to prepare for this collaboration? Yeah, look, um, now we're in negotiations, um, quite limited in what we can say around that space. But, but what I can say is that, you know, New Zealanders voted for this. This is what New Zealanders want, and that's a great thing about democracy. And now we just have to make sure that we deliver um, what New Zealanders have voted for. Um, we've all come in with quite strong um, policies in the ACT Party. Um, we spent the last three years working really hard um, to have on paper exactly the change we wanted to see. Um, so we'll take that to the table, and there may be a bit of um, a bit of uh, negotiation to do in that space, compromises to make. Um, but uh, 
I can see us um, actually delivering some real good change in the next three years. Previously, the ACT Party, as well as the National Party, have, uh, during the election campaign especially, have had their differences with New Zealand First. Uh, How do the parties plan to settle any differences? Yeah, look, um, that's up to the negotiating teams that are sitting around the table um, looking for compromise in spaces. Uh, we're, We're pretty on board with a lot of things with National, um, New Zealand First has got some ideas too that, that we probably agree upon. Um, so there will be wriggle room um, for getting some wins across the line. And will this mean any changes to some of ACT's bottom line, especially uh, the promised treaty referendum? Yes, yeah, the word bottom line um, I try to avoid because when, when you have got MMP, um, there are times where you do have to make compromises. We have, we have campaigned hard on having that discussion around the treaty and what the treaty means for all of New Zealanders. Um, we will take that to the table and we will continue to push hard on that. Um, what that looks like at the other end is not really up to me. Um, that's the negotiation, uh, negotiation team's job to put forward our ideas. Um, and I look forward to seeing um, what the results of those negotiations are. And in terms of timeline, how long is the New Zealand public looking to wait for a finalised outcome of these discussions? Yeah, I understand that it's frustrating for New Zealanders. It's probably just as frustrating for us um, who, are re- who are ready to um, get stuck in um, to make changes of direction that, that's well and truly needed. Um, and every day goes by, um, that need grows. Uh, but I can't give a, a timeline on that. It all depends on, on negotiations and, and how long it takes um, to sort out uh, who wants what. Um, so hopefully it's done quickly and we can get stuck in and do the job. But also, you know, we've got quite a few um, recounts that might be happening. Um, we've got the Port Waikato election. Um, so there's still some things going on in the background that, that we need to keep an eye on as well. Uh, It's also looking like we won't have any Pacifica MPs in government at the moment. Are you worried about uh, Pacifica representation in government, especially seeing as it's already quite vulnerable? Yeah, I mean, we can't control the final result of of who's elected on the day. Uh, All parties can do is put forward representatives, um, and I know each party, um, the National Party, um, has one at the moment that uh, was very, very close in the count. Uh, We can't control what New Zealanders vote for and what that final result looks like in the party. Uh, But what I will say is I stuck my hand up... um, to represent all of New Zealand and make sure that all New Zealanders um, get the best um, deal possible uh, with my representation. Um, I may not be Pacifica, but I, I signed up to represent everybody in the community and listen to everybody's voices. Uh, so, I mean, whilst we may not have as much Pacifica representation, I, I guarantee you nobody goes into Parliament um, to squash the voices of, of one nationality. Uh, one of the issues that's also come up in the last few days is the, this expectation that the incoming government will disassemble the Maori Health Authority, um, as all three parties have backed this up. Do any of the parties have any policies or plans to provide alternative support for Maori or even Pacifica in healthcare? 
Yeah, look, I mean, um, all three parties are on the same page as, that, as you've said, and, and I think that that's quite clear. Um, what that looks like depends on, on um, what the team comes up with around the negotiation table. But just because um, we're talking about disestablishing the Māori Health Authority doesn't mean we're talking about disestablishing um, programs in particular. I know National and ACT are on board with devolving back to community organisations. What it is about is getting rid of the bureaucracy at the top. Why well, have two separate systems that are trying to achieve the same thing? Let's get one system that works well for all. That was ACT MP Karen Chaw discussing the final election results and what this will mean for the incoming government. That was our weekly catch-up with the ACT Party's Karen Chaw. Their relationships with their girlfriends or their wives. Wife. No one. They shouldn't have more than one wife at a time. ERA is a service that assists Kiwis in buying their first home by helping them save and gain interest on their money. They recently put out a report expressing just how difficult it has become for the incoming generation to purchase their first home. The report showed that we can expect a rise in house prices and that first home buyers will no longer be able to rely simply on their savings and bank loans. I spoke to ERA founder Derek Handley about what this report means and what young New Zealanders need to do if they are looking to buy their first home. First of all, could you explain to us uh, what your company does and what it's about? ERA is a financial services platform dedicated to first home savers, people who are saving up uh, to buy their first home. So we are building a whole series of savings accounts that will help them save faster than just bank deposits. And we're also building um, some offerings that will step in to help people get their deposit for their first house when they don't have the bank of mum and dad. So effectively, we invest alongside them to uh, buy their first home. And you've released a report uh, further reaffirming what many of us already know, that home buying is near impossible in Aotearoa at the moment. Uh, could you further explain how this report was conducted and what specific details it found? Well, one of the main things I wanted to tackle was the um, misconception that saving up for a house with a median household income, you know, 15% of that income before tax, over 10 years would get you the deposit for an average size house in Auckland or New Zealand, which is what the current uh, mainstream measures of house uh, time to deposit uh, indicate. And the main thing I wanted to indicate was that, well, when you start saving for a house, the price that you are targeting is actually not the price of today. It's the price when you're going to reach that deposit, which is likely to be seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years down the track. So saving for a million dollar house today with a $200,000 deposit if it's going to take you eight, nine, ten years, which is what the current indicators were saying it would, you actually need four to five hundred thousand by that time. And so, one of the main things I want to indicate was the way we're thinking about it is totally flawed, and we need to be realistic with this generation of first home buyers. You ha you also pointed out that New Zealand house prices have only dropped three times in the last thirty years. There have been some speculations that house prices could experience a drop soon. Is this likely? Well, we just had a major drop. Uh, that's one of the three. Um, and as I think, you know, from last week's media, there's strong indications that the drop is over. So the house price rises are about to return. And I think ANZ said last week they're expecting house price rises to increase 8% next year. So you have these dips every time the kind of cycle tops. It takes a breath, goes backwards a bit, and then it just charges on. And... That charging on historically has been somewhere between 6 and 7% a year for decades now. 
and there's just not much in place in New Zealand that's going to indicate that that would change anytime soon. Your report also stated that mainstream time-to-deposit models are misleading New Zealanders. Uh, Could you explain briefly what these models are and how young New Zealanders in particular can further educate themselves to avoid misinformation? Well, I wouldn't call it misinformation. It's just we could be doing our maths better. As I mentioned, you know, there's no point setting a goal of saving a house deposit based on today's price when we know that it's going to take you quite some years to save, you know, hundred to two hundred thousand dollars. So you should be using a moving target, which is what real estate prices are. House prices are a moving target. If on average they continue to do what they've been doing the last few decades then you need to focus on where the price of the house is going to be by the time you get to that deposit, which, as I said, you kind of get there and it's like, okay, in 10 years, it'll be twice as much. So you need to focus on that as the goal. And that's what we came to on the report to say, well, at the moment, where house prices have reached to post-COVID, with a median household income of, let's say, 159000 in Auckland, saving 15% a year of that, of that household income is unlikely to get you to that goal unless you do other things. And that's why one of the reasons ERA is focused on um, offering a whole set of savings products and accounts that will be like bank deposits or have target uh, interest rates to outperform so they can kind of keep pace with the housing market. That's one part of the problem. The other part is, you know, where do you get the full deposit from? We're currently in the process of getting a new government led by National who have promised to make serious changes not only to the economy, but also to the housing crisis. Is this something we could really expect from them? I mean, you know, we just had a couple of uh, terms of one of the most powerful governments in history in terms of their ability to control and make decisions unilaterally. And so if you didn't see significant transformative change from that government around the housing issue, I think it will be challenging for any government in the future to meet that level of power. And it may require that level of power to make all the changes needed, just to rattle off a few, if you like. We have a massive immigration uh, strategy as a country we have had for many decades. That's how we grow. That might be the secret that most politicians aren't telling you, but that's how the economy grows. We import 50 to 100,000 people a year. We never build enough houses to meet that demand, so we're always tens of thousands of houses behind. We have an interesting structure in the way building products are sold in New Zealand that such some products are basically monopolies, and people have been unable to uh, break up those monopolies, so the cost of materials is very high. We're in a new inflationary environment where the cost of everything is going up at the moment, so all building supplies and everything related to it. The way we build houses is very archaic, slow, and very expensive. We don't have institutional uh, landlords who are happy to have tenants there for life. So you have five, six, seven really systemic issues that if we're really serious about all of these things, you need to kind of tackle all of them together. Uh, For me, that's like way above my pay grade. So... What we're focusing on with ERA is, okay, there's a generation coming in. They need to save faster using different ways to get that deposit and not just building it in the bank term account. And they're going to need assistance to get full deposit at the end of the day if they don't have the bank of mum and dad. So those two problems are what I'm focused on. And the government that's incoming will have to look at, you know, the other six or seven out there. 
If we look at uh, young New Zealanders, students in particular, what kinds of tactics do they have to take in order to save up for their first home? And how long are they going to have to be using these kinds of methods until they can finally buy their first home? Well, if you're starting out today, so you're not at the median household income, right? You're, that's what's 150K. These are all this math I've done and we've done is based on that. So if you're just starting out as a graduate or just a student today, you're already some way behind that. I think the shift is essentially that, okay, in the, in the past, you might have tried to save a deposit and the bank would give you the rest. For this next generation, I think what's going to happen is you're going to need to save as much as you can, and then there's going to have to be an array of support programs like what we're building that would top your deposit up, and then you get the rest from the bank. So that's kind of part one. I think we're entering a new era where you and the bank is probably not going to be enough. It needs to be you plus someone else, which for many people at the moment is a bank of mom and dad. What I'm suggesting is going to be a whole new array of companies and organizations like us and the bank. So the first thing is that's the new realization that I think is coming. The second thing is, yes, you need to save as much as you can. If it's a goal to get a first home, have a goal, have a timeline, think about where you might want to start. And I think from the maths we've done, you need to start at the most affordable property you could possibly perceive as opposed to anything ideal. So an average house in Auckland at the moment is 1.265. Average first home buyer house is 895,000. It would probably be need to be below that to even have a chance uh, in terms of the moving target you need to shoot for. That was Derek Hanley talking about area report on the current difficulties first home buyers will be facing. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to The Wire on 95BFM. Your favourite team, sports team, teamed up with your favourite band, The Beths, and made a movie, The Beths Concert Film, screening at the Hollywood Avondale, Tuesday, November 14. Hey, it's sports team. Hi. In 2020, we made a movie about The Beths nationwide tour, and this will be the first ever public screening. Plus, there'll be a Q&A with us and The Beths, hosted by Jesse Mulligan. All proceeds will go towards our very first feature film. The Beths Concert Film, the Hollywood Tuesday, November 14. Tickets via Under the Radar. Experience George Romero's cult classic Night of the Living Dead like never before. Live in this exhilarating and totally thrilling collision of theatre, cinema and music. Watch the film as two performers attempt to create every sound effect, play an epic new score and voice every character in the film bar one. Live, live cinema. Night of the Living Dead. Created by Leon Radojkovic. Presented by Silo Theatre. On now at the Hollywood in Avondale. Book now at iTicket. They're coming to get you, Barbara. The War on Drugs are coming to Aotearoa in support of their recent album, I Don't Live Here Anymore. And we're giving away tickets. So get your B-card number and stay tuned to 95BFM Breakfast for your cue to enter. The War on Drugs with special guests, Spoon and Indigo Spark. Live at Spark Arena. December 2nd, get your tickets now from livenation.co.nz. The Wire. Uh, I don't know, and, and frankly, the whole thing gives me the heebie-jeebies. The Wire. Tafatu Ora has released data showing a sharp increase in what they say are preventable paediatric hospital admissions across Aotearoa over the past year. The rise shows a 30% rise overall, with certain regions and groups disproportionately affected. Child Poverty Action Group has called on the incoming government to address the issues at the root of increasing health issues amongst our tamariki. 
I spoke to Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics in the University of Auckland's Department of Pediatrics, Ines Asher, who was on the management committee of the Child Poverty Action Group about the data and what these preventable issues are. We also spoke about what CPAG wants to see from the incoming government in order to tackle the issue. So how stark is the rise in preventable paediatric hospital admissions been over the past year, according to Te Ora data? Uh, it's alarmingly high, 35% increase. And in Auckland, 66% increase. Waitamata, 65% increase. And if, uh, these are awful increases uh, because they tell us about uh, a lot of child suffering, family suffering, and the poor environments in which children are living. And so what are the main factors behind these preventable health issues? Well, we've known about this for a long time because the same thing ha- this happened in 1991 when there were changes in public policy. Uh, and they're quite clear that they're, they're uh, overcrowding, uh, damp, mouldy homes that are also cold in the winter, uh, that poor nutrition, not enough money for the basics, and difficult access to health care. And I think at the moment there's more difficulties accessing a general practitioner than there used to be. Is this an issue that is disproportionately affecting children in specific areas or from specific backgrounds? Oh, yes. Uh, in Auckland, particularly, Waitamata, and also particularly um, Pacific peoples are most appallingly badly affected. Pacific children are particularly badly affected compared to other ethnic groups. What effect does this have on our health system, which we know to be already strained and understaffed? Well, it'll be a lot more, I mean, as these data say, there's 35% more children in the hospital sick. So that's a big impact on our health system. Uh, so it will stress every aspect of the health system through from the emergency department in the, in the hospitals, from the emergency department uh, right you know, through to hospital beds and all the staff and facilities required at those different stages. Also, of course, before the hospital system, the general practitioners that will be contributing to the GP overload for those who get to a GP, uh, contributing to the GP practice overload. Uh, and we know that gen- general practices are, are struggling to meet the demands in the community. So it just will contribute to a health system already under great stress. What long-term effects on our tamariki could this have should high paediatric hospital admission rates continue? Oh, we know this because they've been high since the early 1990s, much higher than they were before that. And we know clearly what uh, what the outcomes are. Some of these diseases, the most common respiratory infections, can actually cause damage to children's bodies. So we're talking here about 0 to 4-year-olds. And there's very clear... Data, there's very clear information in New Zealand that a proportion of these children who have severe lower respiratory tract infections will get permanent lung damage, a condition known as bronchiectasis, which can be lifelong and can shorten, can cause disability and shorten your life. So, this is actually a very, very serious matter. And um, so, in addition, of course, we've, everyone's known about rheumatic fever for a long time, but that doesn't tend to cause occur in the very youngest children, 0 to 2, but it can be occurring by 3 or 4 and it might go up to teenage years. And rheumatic fever, of course, damages the heart. So there can be lifelong damages uh, to children's bodies through these 
preventable diseases. So it's deeply concerning. And I personally have seen children like this over my lifetime, and I've seen the upsurge from the 70s, 80s, uh, when I was first practicing in pediatrics, to the 90s, and a huge upsurge of children coming into hospital with these preventable diseases. And that same upsurge is now occurring after the COVID lockdowns, which, of course, did reduce the amount of people in hospital for preventable diseases because of general hygiene measures in the community and in the home. But uh, now that's all released, uh, then um, things are going back to how they... So things are now trending back to where they were. So it's something we're very familiar with. What would the Child Poverty Action Group like to see from a new government to reduce these issues? We'd like to see... uh, factors looking at every aspect of this and we talk about upstream factors and that's what I've been talking about which is what are the factors that make children sick in the first place before they then need to seek medical attention so those are the things that are the absolute priority um, as well as of course shoring up the health system and the number of GPs and access to GPs but the what we call the upstream the things that happen before you get to need to see a GP that make the children sick in the first place. So uh, almost all these things, bugs just love them. So you get into a, children in a, a crowded house and uh, if you get a bug in there, whether it's a skin infection or whether it's a uh, most commonly respiratory infection, it just circulates around the household like wildfire if you're living in crowded conditions. That's where you haven't got enough bathrooms to access to bathrooms and clean linen and so on because you are uh, living in a very crowded place where there are not enough washing facilities. Um, and and so bugs just love this and sweep through. So what we need is enough housing in this country so people are not living in crowded houses. The other thing is that a damp house with mould has been shown to double the rate of hospital admissions and work from... Um, Wellington uh, Dr Tristram Ingham his his, his group showed uh, the terrible increase in effect of having mould in the home in a very carefully uh, careful scientific study and showed that that increased the numbers of children going into hospital with um, preventable with lower respiratory tract infections so if you just looking at the housing side what we need is every child in this house in this country to live in a home that is big enough for the family, enough bedrooms, enough space, and that is not mouldy. And also that the family have enough funds to have a bed for every child and to have a circulating clean linen for every child, including towels, and enough money for soap and so on. So you need enough money in the household to create what we would call the absolute basics of hygiene and health in the house. So we need more a lot more state houses and the ones that are big enough for bigger families or extended families who want to live together. It, it's not just good enough to have a couple of rooms in the house. We need a we need three, sometimes five bedrooms for Pacific families who culture mandates that they want to be living as an extended family unit. They need bigger houses of up to five bedrooms. So we need to have urgent attention to having enough affordable houses for people in this country, and we're way, 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 way off that. So that's the number one thing. Then, in addition, we need to be much more rigorous to be sure all houses are 
warm and dry and have no mould. And it's very important that we have regulations and legislation that are tough enough to address that. We also need families to have enough money to afford the contents of the house to make them healthy. Um, and they need enough money for good, nutritious food. There are so many children in this country whose families are unable to afford healthy food and not being well-nourished can increase your chances of getting really sick. So the people, the groups in this country that don't have enough money are families supported by benefits, which despite some increases are still inadequate. Um, They're living in a cost-of-living crisis all the time. But also... The people who are in low-paid work, that the minimum wage does not cover your basic cost of living. So if you're on the minimum wage or even just a bit above that, anything below the living wage, which is about um, $5,000 a year more than the minimum wages, then you don't have enough money to live on. So we need to, we've gone into a low-wage economy since the 1991 policy changes when they brought in the Employment Contracts Act. We're one of the lowest wage economies in the Western world. And it's very important that we address incomes of people in low-paid work and as well as people who are supported by benefits. Now, in addition, when people are in low-paid work, we need to enable them to to get into higher-paid work, but there's all sorts of terrible tax uh, obstacles, what we call clawbacks, poverty traps that enable people to get out of low-paid work into higher-paid work when they can earn enough to live on. And they are very complex and very bad for family health because they mean that you can't get up and step up into an adequate income. So we don't have enough people in this country living on incomes that are adequate enough to live on. And that's a fundamental thing that policies can change. It used to be much better in New Zealand in the 1980s up to the 1991 policy changes. So there's things we can do there. Do you think the National Party and the ACT Party have outlined and promised enough policy regarding child poverty and health? No. I don't see any policies of any of the leading parties, certainly not National and ACT. I I, I haven't seen anything that uh, means they've got any understanding of these issues and have I see no policies to address these at all. The families who are in these situations, and of course the, the awful thing of a child having to go to hospital because they're so sick, they're highly stressed. You know, you can't see a physical mark on a person, or you know, the, but the, to be so stressed that you cannot afford enough of the basics, and you're having to live in overcrowded, damp houses without enough hygiene facilities for the number of people there. This is a, a terribly, terribly stressful situation. And, and we're committing families to, to be chronically stressed. And chronic stress, we know, is also bad for your health and can make people sick. So we've, we've really got to make some big changes. And I'm glad that the National Party have committed to halving child poverty by 2028. But I don't see any policies to actually achieve that. That's what we need to see. That was Professor Ines Asher from the Child Poverty Action Group speaking to me about Te Whatu Ora data showing a sharp increase in preventable paediatric hospital admissions over the past year. Can anyone explain why the modern day whales are so big? The Wire. After the release of the final election results, Te Aratu National candidate Angie Nicholas has lost her seat after the electorate flipped in favour of Labour's Phil Twyford. Angie Nicholas would have been the the incoming government's sole Pacifica MP, and so a coalition government with National Act and New Zealand First will have no Pacifica representation amongst its MPs. 
I spoke to University of Auckland Associate Professor Sir Colin Tukuitonga, who is co-director of Te Pautoko Ora Akiwa in the Faculty of Medical and Health Sciences about what the official election results will mean for our Pacifica community. What do our Pacifica communities need most from a new government at the moment? Or a range of things, I suppose. The issue will be an effective voice to advocate for the inequities, the chronic problems that we see, for example, failures in the education sector, healthcare problems, problems with housing, access to jobs uh, to enable Pacific uh, people, Pacific communities to contribute uh, further to New Zealand. And the pre-election stuff from a number of parties was not particularly encouraging. Talking about discontinuing the Ministry of uh, for Pacific Peoples, uh, for example, and dismantling affirmative uh, actions uh, such as the one I'm involved with here at the medical school. So I mean, one would hope that common sense will prevail uh, now that the government appears to be forming and the people who seek uh, power hopefully will feel um, that it's not power for power's sake, but power to adopt, develop policies that benefit all of uh, New Zealand and particularly um, Pacific uh, people, Māori, you know, people who are chronically disadvantaged in some way. At this rate, there will not be a single Pacifica MP in government. How damaging could this lack of representation be? Oh, I think it'll set us back uh, many years. There's been a lot of achievement in health and education, and given the rhetoric from the incoming government, it is a concern. Uh, Having said that, I think uh, clearly we would hope that uh, Pacific leaders would speak up on things they see as uh, potentially uh, damaging and to set us uh, back. Encouraging to have two um, Pacifica MPs in the Green Party, but obviously it's a big setback from where we were with the Labour Green government to what we have at the moment, not a single Pacific voice in the National Act or New Zealand uh, First uh, parties. Uh, so. Potentially, it could set us back many years. The ACT Party is still prioritising its policy of the abolishment of the Ministry for Pacific Peoples. Could you explain the purpose and the importance of this ministry? Well, the ministry is uh, a key role is to provide uh, data and advice to the big ministries with money to try to improve healthcare or health services, education, jobs, housing. Um, So that's the main uh, purpose of uh, the ministry. And and it's the same with uh, uh, the Ministry for Māori Development. It's to provide information, advice, uh, cultural support, those kinds of uh, things to improve uh, what the big ministries do for and with uh, the various uh, communities. You know, it's been shown many times that a universal one size fits all is ineffective for some groups and that's why you need a, you need targeted programs such as those uh, advocated for and developed by the Ministry for Pacific People. Now that the official election results have revealed that ACT and National will need New Zealand First to form a government, would this three-way coalition likely have an impact on Pacifica communities? Oh, I would hope that it uh, would have a positive impact. I mean, People will say all kinds of things about uh, New Zealand first, but the fact is that 
Mr Peters and Mr Jones have had extensive experiences in the Pacific and I would hope that they would um, put a break on some of the ridiculous act uh, proposals that we've heard pre-election. So, as I say, uh, one would hope that uh, New Zealand First would pick up that uh, responsibility and to advocate for better services for Pacific communities in New Zealand and in the Pacific region. National candidate Angie Nicholas for Te Aratu, who would have been the sole Pacifica MP in government before the seat flipped in favour of Labour, says... You don't have to be Pacific to understand Pacific issues. If you talk to the community, you get engaged. Do you think National and ACT are doing enough to engage with the community? No, absolutely not. And uh, the young lady you referred to will is, of course, entitled to her views. The fact is the National Party does not have a strong and respectful uh, relationship with uh, Pacific uh, communities and definitely not the ACT Party. So um, I think we've, we've, uh, the, the current uh, coalition arrangement will set uh, Pacific communities back many years and I would hope that they would take responsibility for doing the best they can for all New Zealanders and particularly groups like Pacific peoples who have had, um, as I say, not a particularly good record in health and education and jobs. That was Sir Colin Tukuritonga, co-director of Te Pautoko Ora Akiwa in the Faculty of Medical and Health Sciences at the University of Auckland, speaking to me about the impact this year's election results will have on our Pacifica community. We're going to go to a short song. This is The Circling Sun with Kohan. And then we're going to go to some ads. But we'll be back with more interviews. Keep it on the bay.
Happy birthday, big fan. To celebrate making it one lap around the sun, Big Fan are hosting a series of shows with local legends this November. Including comedy on Wednesday, November 8th with Di Henwood, Guy Williams, Liv McKenzie and heaps more. Music on Friday, November 10th with Molly Payton, Judah Kelly and Lucian Rice. And more music on Saturday, November 11th with Who Shot Scott, Fable and Crystal. Big Fan birthday celebration this November. Tickets on sale now at bigfan.co.nz. Nest Fest is back for 2024 with five stages and over 70 artists performing across two days. This is one summer festie you don't want to miss. And we have a few tickets. So if you're nice to us and you have a B-card, maybe we can chuck a few your way? Just listen to BFM Breakfast all week for your chance to enter. 95 BFM presents Nest Fest, January 5th or 6th at Tormoana Showgrounds in the magical Hawke's Bay. Get your tickets now from nestfest.co.nz. Music's everywhere. It's like a cloud of art. Here at 95 BFM, we've sucked up some of the best contemporary bangers, bottled them and chucked them in a special Spotify playlist just for you. November? Hey, no worries, because the Spotify playlist this month is a scorching beauty. November, just Ember. Featuring Chai, Mitski, Crystal Chen, Ebony Lamb, Ernie Bell, and Emma Anderson. Follow 95BFM on Spotify for our monthly Spotify playlist and stay okay. It's fucked. Yeah, it is. The Wire. Bernard Sama is a doctoral candidate at the University of Auckland Faculty of Education and Social Work and has recently received the Whainga Itetika Award for Social Justice for his advocacy work for refugees in Aotearoa. Upon receiving the award, he has expressed a need for Aotearoa to do more to support refugees, particularly by increasing our intake of refugees fleeing humanitarian crises and conflict. I had a kōrero with Bernard to discuss the future of refugees in Aotearoa under a new government. We also spoke about what New Zealand should be doing to better facilitate the evacuation of civilians from Gaza fleeing violence as a result of the Israeli-Palestine conflict. Could you explain briefly what Aotearoa's refugee frameworks currently look like and what the scale of refugees we accept is? At the moment, we have a number of pathways that people could be resettled in New Zealand as refugees. The dominant ones are those who come as quarter refugees. And for that number, we accept about 1,500 each year. And these are usually people who have been displaced in in a part of the world, maybe in from their home countries, countries in another part of the world. And then they've, they've had to spend usually a number of years, sometimes five years, six years, or even more, in, um, in a third country willing to be resettled in another part of the world. So we, we accept people from this category through the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. And then we have those that come in as um, asylum seekers, so usually people who may have fled persecution in their home country and then find their own way to New Zealand and after arriving here seek asylum. And if they are successful in that process, they are recognized as convention refugees. And then besides these two main categories, we also have um, family reunification categories. Who are These are persons who are uh, family members of either the quota refugees or convention refugees. 
currently we accept about um, 600 places under this pathway a year. And finally, we have the community-sponsored um, refugees who are people that they have been sponsored, who are ref they have refugee status in other parts of the world and living there, but usually in precarious conditions. Then they are sponsored by any community organization in New Zealand that has been authorized by the government to sponsor refugees, and then they can be resettled here. I think the current number is about 50 a year. So how greatly do you think we should be increasing our refugee intake by? I think uh, New Zealand as a country, we are in a very unique position to do more, especially in terms of people that have been displaced by what we're seeing in um, the Gaza with, with bombs dropping in, in a very tiny and small portion of a country like that encycled by Israel. So we have a very unique opportunity where we could go in just like we did in the case of Afghanistan, as well as the Ukrainian refugees, and be able to get some of those people out. Because one thing I would really like our listeners to know is that for most of the people, for many people who come here through a refugee um, quota program, that is the people that have been referred by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, which is technically our main pathway for refugee resettlement. Many of these people would have had to spend sometimes many years in a third country as refugees living in very precarious conditions. Sometimes the trauma that they may have experienced in their home country before fleeing is even worse during that waiting time to be resettled in another country like peaceful country like New Zealand. But we have a very unique opportunity where we could look at what we've done for Ukrainian refugees as well as for Afghanistan refugees. We can go in and take people when they are just coming out, as we see in Gaza, and perhaps still waiting somewhere along the border between Israel and um, Egypt. If we go in and bring those people, they will have a very good start to rebuilding their lives here. Whereas if we leave them, they go through a very protracted process, maybe in Egypt, if they finally succeed to get through. And then they experience various forms sometimes of discrimination and you know, other human rights abuses that they may or just lack of support during a very long period. And then we bring them here. What happens is that these um, things that they may have experienced in a third country then affect how they live and carry on their life and makes resettlement for them quite difficult. So that is where I think we can do, um, we can learn and look at what we've done that is that's working and do do just increase or look at this dimension of helping people quite at, at an early stage rather than leaving it. So if New Zealand wanted to, we would have the ability and the authority to go into Gaza and evacuate people? I think there is some politics there to be, to be ironed out. But if we have the will as a country, we definitely can always work just like it happened in, in Afghanistan. It wasn't a straightforward process just to go in and lift people out. So there is, I believe, if there is a will and the government is 
wants to do that, they will be able to negotiate whether it's with the Egyptian authorities or with the um, the, the government in Israel to, to be able to to bring those people out, or even wait when they cross across into Egypt finally, which I think some may have. Um, they can uh, those that are willing to be able to 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 would like to resettle because. I don't think it's every person that comes out of there that would like to, to to come to New Zealand, for instance, or go to another country. But there are also many that are interested if they if given that opportunity, I believe. So, yeah, it's just a process of negotiating with the government involved to, to be able to get them here. What more needs to be done to improve life for refugees after they reach New Zealand? There's a lot more that we can do to make life better. In terms of, in Auckland in particular, what we are noticing is that um, for people that come as Porter refugees, the service provisioned it's not quite right as it used to be under the Red Cross, and this is because they currently have a new provider, and under the Red Cross, they used to have, uh, the Red Cross used to have a system where when people arrive into New Zealand as quota refugees, go through the Mangri Centre for uh, six weeks and then are sent out into the community, the Red Cross will put them with a volunteer that helps them over a period. Usually it can be up to six months, one year, or even more. It depends really on the volunteer that will support them to be able to pick their life from scratch in New Zealand and get going. But with the provider that they currently have, we are seeing gaps in this area that a lot of people are in, after Mangri, they move into houses and they can't get uh, that support that they usually we, we've seen in the past that really, really helped people to, to cope well. So there's definitely room there that we could improve as well as even in terms of the numbers, if we compare New Zealand as a country, even with Australia that we criticize and they even have gone there to, to take some of their refugees that they've pushed out to Minus Island as well as PNG, Papua New Guinea. If we compare our quota at, um, how do I describe it? Is it the, the ratio per head in terms of the, the local population as well as in terms of the refugees that we bring in, we, we see that we take very minimal numbers. So, we can definitely do more. The the 1,500 that we do, there is a lot more space that we can do if we start comparing with uh, countries that we usually look at and compare other things. Australia, United Kingdom, U.S., Canada, you know, there is a lot more that we can do in this space to be able to add the numbers up. What impact will a new government have on New Zealand's refugee frameworks? That's a very good question. One of the things that I have and, and I did more as a researcher is that when the politics and all of that was going on before uh, the election day, I took my time and went through each of the manifestos or what we would call the the documents that each party has re- released in terms of how it would work with immigration, work with um, refugee communities and other vulnerable groups in New Zealand. And I was a bit um, knocked back or really disappointed when I looked at the new government that we're about to have, including even the the, the, the one with Panarin with. 
that is um, the, the APT party and national, if I may be precise, I couldn't find something on their manifestos that clearly says this is what we intend to do in a refugee space and, you know, really laid out. Whereas if I looked at the green, for instance, I was happy to see that they have something, they acknowledge that this is a people, things that we can do, we can support people from this background. So in terms of that, if I go by their manifestos and what they put out to be able to get their votes, then I'm really skeptical on how well they will do to, to, to help people from this background. And these criticisms as well even go to, to the Labour Party. So I looked at their manifesto and I couldn't see that clear indication of what is it they're offering for people from refugee background or what they might do in that space. So yeah, thank you. So, so I am a bit skeptical. I'm not sure where they will go because they haven't put it out there for us to vote. Apart from the green that clearly laid it out, what they'll be doing in that space, yeah. That was Bernard Sama, recipient of the University of Auckland's Te Whainga i Te Tika Award for Social Justice for his work in refugee advocacy, speaking to me about Aotearoa's refugee frameworks and how they can be improved. That was The Wire. Ko ira te hōtaka katoa mō tēnei wiki, nei te mihi ki a koutou e katoa e korero mai ki o mō tēnei rā, that's a wrap on the Monday Wire. Big thank you to everyone who spoke with us today. The ACT Party's Karen Shaw, Derek Hanley, Professor Ines Asher, Sir Colin Tukuitonga, Bernard Sama. Nera hoki te mihi ki a koutou e Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to 95BFM. Unfortunately, Penny is not here for the one to four, but we've still got some bangers lined up. So keep it on the beat. That was a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B-card. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.